what is up y'all my name is Kristen. my name is sarah and welcome to a very big we miss you episode of the red rum and red wine podcast A podcast where we talk about murder mysteries and mishaps god who missed hearing that i know i did I, I have goosebumps right now i have goosies it's i it's kind of like i don't feel like i'm here right now where like, am i know, i know i'm saying <laughs> words but what are they what's coming out i'm i see myself from above yeah and what the <laughs> fuck are we doing it's just you know life happens it is unfortunate but we're back and wow, it feels good to be back. It does. It feels real good. Yeah. Thank you to guys. the haters that thought oh. we weren't coming back. <laughs> Did we have suck. any of those? <laughs> oh, yeah, girl. Check our YouTube channel. <laughs> really? I don't, I don't do oh, that. Oh, don't, don't, don't do that. It will make you sad. <laughs> Anyways, so sorry. We're back. We have a very interesting episode. A nice little drunk mystery in history to... Pay homage to the month that we have basically missed. Uh, Sorry about that. And to also give a little celebration to our two-year anniversary. Oh, my God. Two years. We've been here. Two years. I have goosies again. Like Goosies all around. We're still here. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Mom, it's not a phase. I know. Mom, it's not a phase. It's who I am And we owe it to all of y'all. All of y'all. All I know. I, I do appreciate the few miss you little uh, messages we got. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah. Oh. If you hear if you hear noises, <laughs> I do apologize. I have a full house here tonight. But well, let's get started. Enough Fuck with the yeah. I miss you's, I guess. Just being sappy here for a moment. Because, I, I mean, I'm getting into some pretty... You know me. I'm going to... Yeah. I got a good old rant to come back with. Okay. Um, I don't know. I heard you have folklore or... Well, it's a historical, like, Native American legend. You know what I mean? Oh. And it's shorter, so I don't know if you want to just, like, knock that out and then get into (sighs) yours. It's hard. That's like... I wish sometimes I could ask the audience and, like... I know. Like, what would you prefer? Yeah. Um, Should we just, like, flip a coin? Do you have a coin? Um, I have a sticker. <laughs> I have a <laughs> bottle opener, but the two sides are the same. Um, you know what? Uh, um, if you are close to my number, you go first. One through ten. What am I thinking? Seven. It was three. I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. So to bring us on back, as many of us may or may not know, the police motto is often known as to protect and serve. This was made very infamous by the Los Angeles Police Department in the 1950s. But one of the amendments that is very important to us Americans is the 14th Amendment. And for those that do not remember it from school, it constitutes that the state shall not deprive any person of life, 
liberty, or property without due process of law. And so because of this constitution, we have police, we have the fire department, we have child protective services, we have all of these institutions, all of these jobs that are created under the guise of to quote unquote serve and protect. But to the surprise, or maybe not surprise if you're me, of many people, I think the most recent that we saw uh, was in the Uvalde school shooting, was that police really don't have a quote unquote right or motto to serve and protect because they're or the will. Sorry, (laughs) no, you are literally just didn't want to go in (laughs) because the state technically has no duty to provide members of the general public with adequate services to protect them. And this has been proven, big air quotes on that, in cases that have been brought to the Supreme Court. And so today I'm going to be talking about why the police constitutionally have no duty to protect and serve its citizens. Ew. Oh, it's a big ill. This case is a big ill. Um, unfortunately, this case involves children. It involves sexual assault and, of course, overall graphic, graphic violence. The first case that I will be mentioning is the case of Warren v. District of Columbia. And just a heads up, these are all very upsetting. I mean, just prepare for some rants. Miriam Douglas, Carolyn Warren, and Joanne Telefero all shared a house at 1112 Lament Street that was located in the Northwest District of Columbia. Carolyn Warren and Joanne Telefero both shared a room together on the third floor, so it was a three-story house. Carolyn and Joanne were on the third floor, while Miriam Douglas lived in a room on the second floor with her four-year-old daughter. It was here at this house during the early mornings of Sunday, March 16th of 1975, that while sleeping, the women would suddenly be awoken to the noises of loud banging. This sound would unfortunately be the sound of two men, later identified as Marvin Kent and James Morse, breaking in through their back door. As soon as the men entered through the back door, they would reach Miriam Douglas's second floor bedroom discovering Miriam inside and then sexually assaulting her. It would be reported that they would actually force Miriam to sodomize Kent while in turn Morse would rape Miriam. Was wait, was Kent her kid or was Kent the attacker? Uh so Miriam had a 4-year-old daughter. I oh. could not get any information on what happened to the daughter. I am not 100% sure if she was even in the room while this was going on, because there is no mention of her really in this attack or this lawsuit, other than the fact that she lived in this room with her four-year-old daughter. Okay. So So one of the attackers, Kent, wanted to be sodomized. Yes. And, you know, sometimes sodomized can also mean oral sex, I believe, too. No? Um, No. I thought so. No, sodomize means I know sticking something in, inside you. But it I could think be it also vaginally can be... or butt. Oh. 
No, I think it's mouth or butt. You know, I'm not 100% sure, but I I Google a lot of fucked up shit. I'm just not going to Google that. We'll, we'll just, <laughs> we'll save that for another day. But it, either way, she, I, because I also read she may have been forced to perform oral sex. I just. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that The too, details yeah. of it are very, you know, it, it's horrific. Yeah. It's just. Obviously, going through that, Miriam is screaming. She's begging for help. Carolyn and Joan hear this from up on the third floor. And in a panic, Carolyn grabs her phone and she dials 911. The call would be received by the Metropolitan Police Department at around 6.23 a.m. And on this 911 call, Carolyn would tell dispatchers that someone broke into their home and that the women needed immediate assistance. They were being attacked. Dispatchers would tell her to remain quiet. Police were on the way. At 6.26 a.m., dispatchers would tell officers that there was a code 2 assignment. This is not the correct code. I'm honestly not 100% sure what a code 2 means, but it should have been designated as a crime in progress, which is a code 1. So automatically things are off to a bumpy start. Police are arriving with the idea that it's not necessarily a burglary. It's just maybe, I guess, some suspicious activity that is going on because this dispatcher uh, inappropriately coded her call or their call. Sorry, not going to be sexist. Four cruisers would be said to respond to this broadcast. Three were said to head to the Lamont Street address, while another was sent to another address to investigate a possible suspect, perhaps, in the crime. Carolyn and Joan, after calling 911, would crawl from their third floor window onto an adjoining roof and would wait patiently and anxiously, terrified, for police to arrive. They were fucking way too scared to hide in the house. It would be described that one policeman would drive through an alley behind their house, continue to the front of the house, and simply drive past, not stopping, halting, or really doing much of anything to try and assess what was going on there. A second would appear. This time, they would get out of the vehicle, and they would knock on the front door. Obviously, they're not going to answer the door. And the attack is happening on the second floor, so I can't say as to how sound may travel, you know, if he was paying attention to something like that, if he was even trying to hear for anything, but apparently he didn't, because when no one answered, the cop would simply turn around and leave. Did the the, the girls not notice? I thought that too. I thought that too. I'm flagging down. Because if I saw them on the roof or if I saw them knocking on the door, I would scream. But I also don't know if maybe they didn't scream out of fear of maybe being seen by the people in the house or heard by the people in the house. I don't know if maybe the adjoining roof didn't have any visual of it. They don't explain it very well, so I don't. I thought the same exact thing. It's just, it's one of those things where either they may have been too scared to scream or they were in a visual position where they couldn't see the cops. And if they're on the third floor climbing out of a roof, um, 
I know cops bang loud, but I don't know, maybe this cop didn't, maybe just a lot of weird things were going on this night. Mm. So for whatever reason, they didn't scream down to them. The cops didn't realize that they were on the roof. Maybe they did and they couldn't hear them. Either way, at 6.33 a.m., five minutes after police initially arrived, they would depart the scene. Carolyn and Joan were still on the roof at this time, so I don't know if maybe they heard the police knocking and thought, cool, the police are here, they're breaking in, they're getting the situation solved, so now it's safe to come down. I feel like now that I said that bullet point, I feel like that maybe makes more sense. You're too scared to scream. You think you see police cars there. You're like, oh, my God, they're here. I'm safe. And so now you're crawling into the third back into the window and you're like, OK, I expect police to be at my door kind of telling me that it's OK and that it's safe to come out. But unfortunately, they would go in and continue to hear Miriam screams. So at that time, a second call would be made at 6.42 a.m., a call is made to dispatchers specifically saying, intruders are in my home. Someone is being attacked. Help us. Please help us. We need help. We are two defenseless women. We're all women living in this home. Like, fucking, probably the gun laws at this time, I don't fucking know. It's just, like, it's, it's just ridiculous. It? Sorry? 1975. Oh. Shit. Anyone may have been no fucking on the gun wonder. at that time, but I don't, I don't, I'm alive at that time. I don't know, but it, it's just like, even if you owned some type of weapon of protection, they were asleep, and they fucking got like ambushed. It's, it's just, you're women. You have a child in the home. When something bad is happening, you're gonna call the police, and, I mean, you expect them to show up. That's what nine one one is for. What? reason to call 911 other than to get the cops to your home or to get some kind of help in some situation. Yeah. It's one plus one equals two. Mm-hmm. Four, if you ask the police. I was but, just about uh, to say four. <laughs> <laughs> it's fish, but, you know. So the women were told that help is on the way. They've, again, maybe seen, I, I it's hard to get details. And I also am not going to victim blame. It's not their fault. They called the police. They did the right thing. It does not matter if, like, they didn't, you know, yell from a roof or whatever. The police should have done their due diligence in doing their fucking job and knocking on the goddamn door, knocking it down, understanding that an intruder is in the door, they need immediate help. Like, the whole knocking business isn't going to do. But since Carolyn and Joan were told multiple times that officers were on the way, and a decent time has passed. Turns out dispatcher never released another code, another anything. Uh, it would be marked as investigate trouble, but apparently no one was dispatched. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Do your fucking job. But they didn't. And so these women, hopeless, scared, think that the police are there. And they call out. Unfortunately, when they call out, Kent and Morse recognize that there are two more people upstairs. And while the police should be fucking on the front lawn, arresting some motherfuckers, instead, Carolyn and Joan 
are forced downstairs, all three of them, Miriam included, forced out of the house at knife point and then brought to Kent's apartment. From here, all of the women are robbed, beaten, and forced to commit sexual acts on not just the men, but on one another, and held for 14 hours. Ugh. Because the police failed. I'm sorry to do their fucking job. That's frankly and what it was. Literally. And also, the dispatchers, like, the, the dispatchers, police. Yeah. Yes, the dispatch one. Like, dispatch one. You should have made it a code one, not a code two. But two, when you have a second call out and no dispatch is made, it's, I don't know. I'm not a cop, but also at the same time, I get y'all have busy nights, but for no one to even show up the second time, I guess maybe because dispatch didn't do their job, which if dispatch isn't doing their job, fucking fire them. Was that person fired? My common sense, if you can't, if you make a mistake in your job, especially one that causes three fucking women to be kidnapped and raped, you should probably not do that job anymore. Right. And I hope maybe you're listening to this and, you know, feeling bad. I don't know. You may be dead. Hopefully you are so you don't hear me talking this much shit about you. But, like, goddamn. So the second trial or the second appeal that is attached to this um, appeal that was sent to the Supreme Court happened on April 30th of 1978 when around 11.30 p.m. the appellant, which is basically like the person who spoke the appeal... Yeah, appellant, thank you. <laughs> I can't read. His name is Nicholas. He stopped his car at a red light at the intersection of Missouri Avenue and 16th Street in NW, North Washington. Is there a North Washington? What's NW? Um, Northwest? Oh, anyway, <laughs> he's on some street. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I did copy and paste that. I'm not going to lie. So this guy's at the intersection of uh, Missouri Avenue and 16th Street when a car out of nowhere rams Nick's car, Nicholas's car, several times. Um, Obviously, Nick stops the car. Nicholas, I'm so sorry, Nicholas, if you don't go by Nick. I just see Nicholas. I want to say Nick. Nicholas stops the car and is like, what the fuck, man? Like, give me your insurance. And the assailants take it a step further by then deciding to beat Nicholas heavily around the face and head so hard that they would actually end up breaking his jaw. When the Metropolitan Police arrived, so this was somewhat in the same area as the Warren house, you know, to answer your question from earlier. So when they arrived on the scene, the police made no real attempt to get any type of description, any type of identifying factors from the people that just beat up this poor man. And so when Nicholas goes to try and proceed with any legal action against, you know, his assailants that did him wrong, they're like, oh, the cops didn't do their job that night. There's no description. There's no anything. So we can't really help you. I know we didn't do our job, but, you know, basically, fuck you. Like, we're not going to help you. And... So rightfully so, Nicholas is like, okay, well, it's the officer's fault. It's the Metropolitan Police Department's District of Columbia's fault 
for not training their officers, for not, obviously they're not trained. This is like fucking two cases that are brought up to the Supreme Court, which have you mind, it takes kind of a lot to get up to the Supreme Court. You have to go through quite a few. You have to go through literally all the other courts. To get up to here. So for two cases, same area, around the same time to be brought up, Low key, so sorry. I'm it says the Columbia Court of Appeal, District Columbia Court of Appeal. So I'm not 100% sure if this one went all the way up to the Supreme Court, but it went up high enough for this fact to be proven. Because if it's not going up to the Supreme Court, it's being proved in lower courts. That's just like as fucked up in my mind. But District of Columbia Court of Appeals, as I did Google, is the highest court since 1970, I guess, like in this area. So do with that information what you will. But in a decision that was led four to three per the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, they would dismiss not just one of these cases, but both of them. And this is based on the public duty doctrine. It's a big concept of tort law, which if you listen to one of our episodes, I forget which one, you got to listen to all of them if you want to find out. But basically, tort law is where you're able to hold parties liable for failing to provide relief for the wrongful act. So like, in this case, rescuing the party that, you know, was calling for help, um, who otherwise would be injured in their case, severely traumatized, sexually assaulted and beaten or killed otherwise without being rescued. But unfortunately, the it's we're going to find out. It's just a lack of them not wanting to have accountability within themselves. It is a big one humanitarian issue that this keeps being proven in a court of law that it's not police's duty to serve and protect, even though we have police here to serve and protect and that people deserve, you know, not to be fucking beaten or not to be killed for just trying to live their lives. They really deserve to be humanized. (laughs) Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without being killed by some fucking crazy person that we know is, like, trying to fucking kill An egotistic, masculinity-filled person who has a job that he's way too proud about. And it only gets worse. So this case is denied. Now we have DeShaney v. Winnebago City. This one involves a child. It's hard. It's mm. Joshua DeShaney was born in 1979. Uh, His parents lived a rather volatile lifestyle together, mainly in the form of Joshua's father from what I can tell. And then just a year later, they would be granted, the parents would be granted a divorce by a Wyoming court. Joshua's father, Randy DeShaney, would move a few states away over to Wisconsin, over to a city named Nina. And I'm not exactly 100% sure how, but he would end up gaining full custody of Joshua, who was just an infant at the time. I believe he may have been less than a year old or maybe just around a year old when his parents did get divorced. So baby Joshua went with him to Wisconsin. It was here that Joshua's father, Randy, would get into a second marriage, which also would end up in divorce. Uh, I don't 
frankly believe that Randy's the greatest guy, and we come to find this out because in January of 1982, his second wife would say to police while they were getting a divorce, hey, I'm really nervous about Randy and Joshua because Randy hits the boy causing marks and he is a prime case for child abuse. Catching wind of, obviously she's telling the police this, so the Winnebago County Department of Social Services, also known as the DSS, has no other choice but to open a case. I feel like it would be really unethical if they did not at least interview these claims. So, of course, when they go to question Randy, he denies it. He says no, like all, if not fucking 99% of abusers say, they fucking deny. And, you know, this was enough for DSS because they didn't press the issue further. Unfortunately for Joshua, in January of 1983, he would be admitted because of the DSS's lack of a care. And I do understand that a lot of these departments are heavily overworked and a lot of these people maybe try. But in the case of Joshua, I will say that no, these people didn't fucking try. So don't come at me with this, oh, well this, oh, well that. Mm. No, they didn't fucking do anything. So take it elsewhere. Joshua was admitted to the local hospital with multiple bruises and abrasions. The examining physician obviously said this is child abuse. He is being abused, notified DSS, They would obtain some kind of order from the juvenile court within Wisconsin, placing Joshua into temporary custody of the hospital because the accusations and the evidence, aka his beating, was so severe that it's, I mean, no other way could this kid have come into the hospital other than being beaten. Three days later, while Joshua's in the custody of these, of the hospital, a child protective team was somewhat assembled. This consisted of a pediatrician. I say somewhat, you find out why. A pediatrician, a psychologist, a A police detective. A team, my friend. Of fucking idiots. Uh, The county's (laughs) lawyers, several DSS caseworkers, and various hospital personnel to consider Joshua's situation. So to investigate, to look into it and say, hey, is this kid good enough to go back home or should he stay in protective services? At this meeting, they decided that there was no evidence, insufficient evidence. Let's go ahead, release Joshua back to his dad. But, but before we release him back, he must be enrolled in a preschool program. His father must get counseling services and his father's girlfriend must move out of the home. The Juvenile court also just completely dismissed the child protection case and, yeah, returned Josh back. No surprise later. To me, it should have been to the DSS. I'm I'm just like, you're, I'm, everyone, that whole entire department should have been fired. This is infuriating. A month later, emergency room personnel called DSS caseworker again, who's handling Joshua's case, to report that oh my gosh, he's coming in another time. How many times are we calling y'all? And he has suspicious injuries. The caseworker concluded that there was no basis for action. And for the next six months, she would visit the home, make like detailed notes about how, yeah, 
Joshua has a lot of suspicious injuries. Joshua is like maybe being abused. But she didn't fucking tell anyone. She literally told her journal and that was it. And then she shut her eyes at night. Fuck you. I hope you rain your Fuck car. Fuck that person. As, a, I hope- as an individual who's literally getting their master's in social work, fuck that person. She also noted that Joshua had not been enrolled in school. And uh, the girlfriend had not moved out. And Joshua in particular, this is very important for later on, had tremendous head injuries, had very suspicious head injuries to him that a child sh- a child should not have. On November 1983, the emergency room would be notified yet again because this caseworker refused to do anything with her fucking job that Joshua had been treated once again for injuries that they believed were caused by someone in the home. One caseworker was sent to visit the DeShaney home twice. Uh, She would tell, I believe one time that she went, they would say that Joshua was too ill to see her. And that excuse was good enough for her because she would leave and, you know, not make any note of it, not say anything about it. I'm just like, do y'all get the full fucking information when you go on to cases or is it just word of mouth from the person that handled it last? Because anyone that would read a case file that I, I just like me saying this, how can you not? How can you not see that? I see laziness. It's it wouldn't be until March 1984. So fucking five months, four months, no, five months later. It, it, unfortunately, on March of 1984, because of anyone's no one refute or because of anyone's lack of ability to try and help this poor child, Randy DeShaney beat four year old Joshua so severely that he fell into a life-threatening coma. He would have to have emergency brain surgery performed on him for a series of hemorrhages that were on his brain that were caused by traumatic injuries that had been inflicted not over a short period of time, but over long, over months, over years, over all of those protective fucking calls begging for help from doctors, from random people, from the second ex-wife, all of these people saying, this is a problem, this needs to be solved. And y'all saying, "Mm, I don't feel like dealing with that right now. I'm gonna let this poor four-year-old who has no, is not even like cognitive of his fucking thoughts or emotions be sent to a hospital in a coma. Unfortunately, I mean, Joshua... He wakes up from this, but he's, it's permanent brain damage. He is permanently mentally hindered from this experience. He will not experience a regular life like you and me. He will forever need help because of this, because his father beat him so badly at the age of four. Obviously, someone needs to pay for this. Yeah. Like, Like, yes, it is Joshua's father's, it's Randy's fault, for doing this action, but there were so many times, so many instances where you could have done something and helped and you did not. That, like, in a fucking court of law, that makes you an accomplice in certain 
cases. So why are you not an accomplice to fucking Joshua's death, caseworkers, who ignored this poor child suffering? It's just... Yeah. Oh, also, I'm sorry. Uh, I, the 70s, 80s were fucking... She took meticulous notes in her journal about how he was being beaten and didn't even tell the boss. Didn't tell anyone. I mean, it what I'm what was the point of child protective services? I'm right. genuinely curious. What was the point of having it if you're just going to detail the abuse and then do nothing about it? That doesn't make sense to me. Get rid of it. I'm sorry, I'm not going to pay a salary for someone who doesn't do their fucking job. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. It's ranty. That's a ranty one. Uh, Joshua and his mother is wood. Sue, the respondents of Winnebago County DSS and various employees of the DSS that, in a sense, deprived Joshua of his liberty without the due process of law. And this, in turn, violated his rights of the 14th Amendment. You'll see the main cause that is being brought up with people saying that police are not uh, protecting me is it goes under the 14th Amendment of due process. When this case was brought to courts, they would find that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment does not require state or local government entity to protect citizens from, quote unquote, private violence meaning these random people that decide to come and attack you. Or, I kid you not, it is a literal quote, other mishaps attributable to the conduct of its employees. So that includes us folks, the Red Rum and Red Wine listeners. Oh, fucking gay. Oh, fucking gay, government. Give me another reason not to like you. But, yeah, they basically... um, it's really interesting, in a fact, in a sense. Uh, I did read that when this case was made, Warren v. Columbia, uh, sorry, Warren v. District of Columbia, that this decision actually counteracted a decision that had been previously made by the Third Circuit and estate by Aura v. County of York and by Dicta Jensen v. Conrad. So in two separate cases, this point had been made that once a state learns that a particular child is in danger of abuse from third parties, that they undertake the responsibility of protecting that child from danger and that this includes a special relationship that arises which kind of what i was saying in the beginning you need a special relationship in order for it to be kind of constitutionally legal so this whole two prior cases have proved that this child deserved constitutionally the right to be protected from his father it had been proven in two previous cases but no when it was brought up to the courts they said no warren v district of columbia fuck the you the courts love to, to counteract contradict themselves, themselves. Yeah. yeah roe v wade where's my abortion rights and <laughs> the just... whole church separating from state where the fuck is that Yeah, separation of church and state, uh, abortion rights, humanitarian rights, basic human rights. We don't know that in America. Mm -mm. Who are we? And No, I mean, the best case to prove it is this actual last and final case. I'm sorry, guys, this is a long one, but I just have to make my rant valid. The last case that I am bringing us, Castle Rock v. Gonzalez. This complaint was filed after Jessica Linehan experienced the absolute worst nightmare that a parent could experience and had to sit back 
and helplessly watch as the police did nothing to help her. She had been known as Jessica Gonzalez at that time. I will not be referring to her as Jessica Gonzalez because you see Jessica had been previously married to a man named Simon Gonzalez. When they divorced, Jessica would actually end up getting a restraining order against Simon because he had been acting so violent and what's the word I'm aggressive, for? aggressive, impulsive. He was acting cray. It just it, it's not good. You don't want your kids to be around that. You don't want them to see that like they you need safety within the household, especially during a time like this, because uh, I believe, you know, he had been abusive to her during that relationship as well. There is actually a documentary that you can watch about her case. I have not had the time to watch it, but I really do want to watch it. She talks not only about the case in itself, but just kind of how she handles the trauma, both her and her son. The restraining order would be issued on May 21st, 1999 by the courts, but the respondent's husband wouldn't get it, or Simon would not receive this paper until June 4th of 1999. You know how they technically have to be served and they had been separated at this point. So it took a little bit of time to get the paper to him. Uh, at this time, the restraining order said that he was commanded to not, quote, molest or disturb the peace of the respondent or of any child, unquote, and to remain at least 100 yards away from the family home at all times. I did read, though, that potentially once he had been served the restraining order, the limits on that had been shifted and he would be allowed certain limitations with his four children. Jessica did have a son, an older son, and then her three daughters, Rebecca, aged 10, Catherine, aged 9, and Leslie, aged 7. And the agreement was basically for him to have them on alternate weekends for two weeks during the summer and for, quote, upon reasonable notice, end quote, for a midweek dinner visit that had been previously arranged by the parties. So no surprise visits here. It's something that is put in ink. It's ordered. And I think for a while it may have been like court supervised, but don't quote me on that. It had to have been. We just got to do more for domestic violence within the court system. It, I agree. It's really scary. It's, it's scary. On Tuesday, June 22nd of 1999, somewhere between 5 to 5.30 p.m., Jessica's husband would actually take all three of her daughters while they were playing outside of the home, probably under the guise of, hey, talk to your mom, let's hop in for dinner, yeah, or hey, 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 I'm here to pick y'all up to play, blah, blah, blah. I mean, like, I loved my dad when I was younger. I didn't know any better to the piece of shit that he was. No, like, same. I, actually, my mom told me when I was older uh, that after they had gotten divorced that one day my dad came to like pick me up from school when he wasn't supposed to and shit like that happens and i was like excited to see him because i hadn't seen him much at all throughout the divorce like i didn't see him at all and so when he came to pick me up i was super excited but then like he wasn't supposed to be doing that so (laughs) yeah it becomes a scary situation real fast and it's 
I mean, the majority of Amber Alerts that we get on our phone are from family members abducting right. younger children. So it's very scary in that sense. But it just like we're getting the notifications, even if it's family members taking them, it should be taken just as seriously. This woman had a restraining order against her husband saying that she he was not allowed to pick up the kids between in between these certain times. And if it wasn't, then, like, the restraining order was in place. Unfortunately, when Jessica called the police, she would call them at 7.30 p.m. The Castle Rock Police Department, they would dispatch two police officers. They would say when the officers arrived, she would show them a copy of the TRO, which I guess is the restraining order, and she requested that it would be enforced and that the three children be returned to her immediately. The officers on the scene would state that there was nothing that they could do about the TRO. I'm sorry, what's the point of a restraining order? If you're not going to use it. like, And as officers, you're supposed to enforce it. And I did. Okay. If you want to listen to a lawyer's perspective on this case, highly, highly suggest 5-4, I believe is how they pronounce it. Uh, I listened to, they did like an hour long episode on this one alone and like they're lawyers. So they actually know law and they kind of. I'm doing a really bad job at describing it, but how they said is the wording in the restraining order, I guess it says that the police force shall or like may, and it's just the wording that they use within that sentence shall that they're, not that must. they shall use. It's like, oh, well, they can decide if they shall or shan't right. use that force. Shall or may doesn't but say like, must. Or has. Fuck you. Fuck oh you. What is the point of that court documented order where you proved that this man was violent, that he was a harm to you and your children? That like, I mean, just what the fuck? I was honestly the most upset. They're all upsetting. I thought this one would be the strongest case because she had a legal piece of paper from the fucking courts yeah, that you come from anybody. saying that. not like bro and she's calling she calls at 7 30 hey come grab my children they are gone they are missing please come get them they say no wait until 10 p.m if they're not back by 10 call us 8 30 p.m I talked to my husband on his cellular telephone. He told me he has the tree. He has the three children at an amusement park in Denver. Please, please go to this amusement park and check for them. Please. He is not allowed to have them per this court order. I am using my authority to put this court order in act like you all have nothing better to do. Yeah, don't arrest me for 1.3 grams of weed. God damn. Don't arrest me for my fucking pen and give me a felony. I want justice. I want these three children saved. She waits until 10.10. Calls the police. Says, my children are still missing. Wait until midnight. Is what I would burn the police station down. How are you going to tell us to sit back and let the officials handle it? When this is how you handle it. When they literally don't handle it. Yeah. So she she decides, I'm going to do it myself. She goes to her husband's apartment. 
Unfortunately, nobody is there. She would end up calling the police at 1210. It is past midnight and she is begging, begging, please. I'm waiting for someone to arrive to come and help me. Come to my husband's apartment and help me. They were maybe said, okay, sure, someone's on the way. No one came. Dude, fucking no one came. She waited there like 40 minutes. She went to the police station at 12.50. She's like, no one's going to listen to me. I'm going to go yell in your face. And she would submit an incident report because that's all. She couldn't even submit a missing child's report. She had to submit an incident report. And the officer who took it apparently made no reasonable effort to enforce the restraining order or any attempt to even see potentially where her children could be and instead went and ate dinner, oink, oink, oink. The husband would end up arriving to the police station. It would be at about 3.20 a.m. And when he did so, he would actually open fire on the police station. He would shoot the police or shoot into the station or surrounding station with a semi-automatic handgun that he was allowed to purchase earlier that evening. Maybe we shouldn't let that happen, folks. Gun control. A little bit. Maybe shouldn't be able to Don't get a gun the same day. <laughs> Dime, just that. I know it was earlier on. I know this is like 70s, 80s. But that's warm. <laughs> Police would shoot back and, you know, they would kill the father. Unfortunately... It didn't matter because the police didn't do their fucking job. Right. When the police went up to the truck to investigate the damage that had been done, they realized the totality of their mistake when they found all three of the daughter's bodies behind the back or in the back of the truck already shot to death by Jessica's husband. Because they refused to act. To do very much of anything. Literally nothing. You had to wait until the guy showed up to your fucking police department. You're such lazy pieces of shit. Fuck all y'all. There was some kind of way that they were going to try and make it a property clause. Because it had a right to her property. Because she had a restraining order. Unfortunately, uh, the due process clause does not protect everything that might be described as a government benefit, aka a restraining order. And uh, to have property interest in it, you must have legitimate claim to it. I don't know. It's fucking stupid. Even if you could get the claim, the courts could grant or deny whether you can make claim to that. So it's it's all bullshit. It's all legal fucking bullshit. The end of the... Uh, law thing that I read at the end of this really pissed me off because they were like, you know, we just let empathy get in the way. Before yielding to impulse, we must remember that the harm was not inflicted by the state of Wisconsin, but by Joshua's father. And to that I say, fuck you. It is because of the state's lack of care that Joshua's father was able to get away with as much as he fucking did. And thankfully, Jessica realized that. And Jessica said, fuck you, Supreme Court, U.S. government. I don't know who she really got all the way up to. I'm not handling that. 
she would actually become the first individual domestic abuse survivor to bring up a case against the U.S. before an international board when her and her legal team decided to file a case against the U.S. government to the Inter-American Commissions of Human Rights. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights would actually find the U.S. government responsible of violating human rights against Jessica and her children. Because what we did is fucked up. And it is fucked up for you to not hold any accountability to protect and serve. And then you literally don't do that. Like, get rid of that stupid fucking motto. You don't even have a legal liability to do that. The U.S. government, I roll, of course, officially reject the IACHR's ruling. But thankfully, our U.S. law has a little bit of different mind. Uh, since Jessica has fought as hard as she has fought, there have been over 30 municipalities that have adopted resolutions or proclamations that recognize the freedom from domestic violence being a basic human right. So... Yeah, obviously. Round of applause for the common sense of some people, U.S. government, we need to hop on. Also, big shout out to Jessica and everyone involved for having the strength to bring it up to the appeal court that they did, because one, that takes a lot of effort. That's not hard to, or that is very hard to relive your trauma and be questioned over it and act like it's not valid and be told by a court that it's not valid when, I'm sorry, they're fucking stupid. It is. You're valid. All of this shit is valid. The fact that no one got fired, no one was reprimanded for this, it just... I am not proud to be an American right now. It's uh, haven't been for a while. I'm not proud to be an American where I know I don't wah, have wah, a duty wah. to serve and protect. Anyways, what are you talking well, about? Well, my story <laughs> is a little less frustrating. <laughs> it's actually Yay, no like 100 percent less frustrating. Um, Kristen, am I actually gonna end it happy? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not like happy or sad it's i, th- I oh. think it's like neutral you know it's like okay. it's, it's no, a legend I can, it's whatever i'm actually kind of glad that i'm ending on that we're ending on yours yeah i i can't take any more <laughs> yeah i've been like, too i don't think i'm gonna anger emerged. anybody unless i i get some facts wrong which i hope i don't i'm so sorry but uh Kristen, before i start may i just ask you a question uh, see Do you believe that giants have ever existed within? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Positively, tutta fruitily. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So today I will be talking about the Lovelock Cave Giants. I'm so excited. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into it. Lovelock Cave is located about 22 miles south of Lovelock, Nevada. It is a lone cave on a mountain uh, within the Humboldt Mountain Range, which is located in basically the middle of the desert in Nevada where Humboldt Lake once was until it dried Mm -hmm. up. Okay. This dried up lake bed is now called the Humboldt Sink. 
oh, that makes me nervous because, like, I just fear one day heavy rain, it's going to fucking Isn't flood. it scary? Yeah. A little bit. The Humboldt Sink and its surrounding land has been home to the indigenous people of Nevada for over 4,000 years. Specifically, it's been home to ancestors and the people of the Paiute Native American tribe. And this 4,000 years is how long this Lovelock Cave, as well as the narrow path up the jagged mountain that leads to the cave has been utilized by the indigenous people. The Lovelock Cave is described to have been a rock shelter, obviously because it's a cave in a mountain and it's all like a rock formation. <laughs> mm. So it's it's descri- described to have been a rock Shelter, which overlooked the Humboldt Lake, which was once a lake and is now not a lake. The Lovelock Cave is described, so as I mentioned, it's a part of a mountainside. So it's on the the side, it's described as being as a rock shelter, you know, a cave of a rock formation. Which overlooked the Humboldt Lake when it was a lake, which is now the Humboldt Sink. Sink. Okay, you know, you know what this. I'm so sorry. You know what this reminds me of? The Hills Have Eyes origin story, um. <laughs> where that like ancestral family lived on a cliff by a fucking Dude, lake. Just Ooh! wait, or it was like a sea. Ooh! Just wait, because. Oh, I'm not ready. Maybe. Oh my god, I don't know. Soot is coated on the roof of the cave due to the many campfires that was lit inside of it by indigenous people. Mm. According to Paiute tribal lore, which uh, the Paiutes, northern Paiutes, are heavily populated in the Nevada area, this this specific location said that according to the Paiute tribe lore, the Lovelock Cave actually became the final resting place to a tribe of red-headed cannibal giants. (laughs) Dive my hair back to dark immediately. (laughs) (laughs) The Paiutes named this tribe or these giants... Sitika, 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 which translates to tool eaters. Apparently, the giants wove tools. Wove. Wove tools, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a fibrous water plant. And they would wove these tools into rafts to navigate across what remained of the Humboldt Lake. Hmm. And, of course, like, whatever else they could do with the, the tools. Yeah. These cannibal giants were said to be vicious and unapproachable and that they killed and ate their captives. Okay. Say so they were not just redheaded and big, but they were cannibals. Me on a Monday. (laughs) I'm not a cannibal. I'm just grumpy. (laughs) 
This legend of these red-headed giants were told orally by the Paiutes to, like, for hundreds of years, but they were also told to white settlers in the days of the Wild West. So, when white people were Crazy invading, how it traveled. Yeah, well, when white people were invading, I think, you know, like, the indigenous were, like, they tried to scare them a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Whether the story is real or not. But I mean, white people know gingers have no souls. <laughs> Maybe this is the origin story of that. <laughs> but this legend was first written down in 1882, or it said also oh. in 1883. By the daughter of the Paiute Indian chief at the time, Sarah Winnemucca. (gasps) Sarah! With an H. Oh. (laughs) Sarah Winnemucca wrote a book, actually, in the 1800s, where she stated that the Paiutes, along with other surrounding tribes, banded together and actually fought a three-year war against this tribe of red-headed cannibals. Jesus. Sarah said that the quote-unquote people eaters would leap into the air, catch the arrows that would be shot at them, that would fly over their heads and then shoot them back at their enemies. Ultimately, during at the end of this three-year war, the cannibals would retreat back to the Lovelock Cave where Sarah's Paiute ancestors, along with the other tribes, would actually trap them in the cave they would set a fire at the entrance of the cave to suffocate those in the cave by, you know, they would light a fire. A smoke inhalation. Yeah. They would oh. light a fire at the cave entrance and suffocate them. That's fucked. They would also shoot arrows into the <gasps> cave to kill anyone who didn't asphyxiate. Uh, uh, <laughs> Oh my God, guys. Now, I will mention Sarah Winnemucca's book does not mention anything about giants, mm-hmm. but this did not stop this story and legend involving giants to circulate before and after her book was released. I'm like, oh my God, they were probably just killing regular people. <laughs> I'm like, maybe the, I don't know, the average height of Native Americans, but if it's anything like Mexicans, if you just get a tall guy, that's a giant. Yeah, exactly. And I will get to that for sure. Oh my God. They were just killing over six foot five. They were just just killing tall people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Um, Unfortunately, after this event, most of the cave would end up collapsing allowing only birds and bats to enter. But in 1886, a Lovelock mining engineer, John T. Reed, said that some indigenous people took him into the cave or took him to the cave 
and told him the story of the red-headed cannibal oh my God. giants. I thought you were going to say they took him into the cave and then they cannibalized him. I was he said that when he entered the cave, he saw nothing but bat guano, which is bat droppings. Uh, the cave was covered in bat shit, basically. You know, that's what they make our mascara out of. Yeah. John T. Reed was intrigued, though. Even after just seeing bat droppings, he wanted to get an archaeological dig started, but was never successful at it. Until 1911, when miners realized how valuable bat guano was as one, fertilizer for crops, and then two, as an important ingredient in gunpowder. Oh. Mind you, we are in the Wild West, people. So, oh, you know, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Thank you for that. I. Holy wow, shit. you learn something new every day. So the group of miners started stripping and hauling this bat poop out of this cave, which they did for like feats. For what? That didn't make sense. Sorry. It's Okay. I, too, do that in life. So the miners started stripping and hauling this bat guano out of the cave, which eventually prompted the the discovery of indigenous artifacts. <gasps> this spurred the first official archaeological dig of Lovelock Cave in 1912, which was led by L.L. L.L. Loud from the University of California. And if you do more research into this, there is a little more into it with the digs, but I'm kind of skipping over a few parts because really doesn't matter. I don't think so. We want to get to the good stuff, which is the mythology of it all. A second dig did take place in 1924 and after finishing the excavations ll loud collaborated on a report that was published in 1920 29 so he published a report of his findings in 1929 Uh, i'm not going into that but I will go into what was said that was found during this archaeological dig. Thousands, and I mean over 10,000 artifacts would be uncovered during this dig. And this added to our knowledge of the lakeshore life and culture at the time. I mean, that's not even fucking amazing. That's fucking historical. Hell yeah, it's fucking amazing. I mean, goddamn, you're just learning so much about a piece that you would have never known about had you not found that. Exactly. <laughs> fucking love people that like to dig up dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my dad did that shit, and I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> That was me when I was three. I was an aspiring was geologist. Like, cool, you went into caves and stuff? All right. <laughs> uh, no, but 
they found amazing things that really opened our eyes at the time to what culture was in a cave on the lake thousands of years ago so yeah dude that's fucking awesome they found tools weapons something called a winnowing tray which is something Hmm. used to gather and roast pine nuts they found like fragments of woven baskets ancient stone smoke pines tool (laughs) duck toys Decoys, sorry, not toys. Tool. Oh, to like hunt. And this kind of duck decoy is said to be one of the first, if not the first, duck (gasps) decoy to have been ever been used. That is fucking sick. And you know, like you use duck decoys for fishing and whatnot. So it's just regular. It's so. It's just an average part of your every day life if you're a hunter because i'm not a hunter right. and i obviously <laughs> Neither but, like, I, but... Uh, to think of the very first one right that's ever made what? they also found fishing net material made of like you know natural weaved fucking fabric they found shells large black stone whale sculptures Small white carved fish sculptures, an antique duck call. So, if you don't know what a duck call is, it is also used for hunting. And it's also been rumored that they found a sandal like shoe that measured about 15 inches. And, damn, you know what they say about big feet? Not only artifacts were discovered, but also 60 average height mummified remains and a few skeletons indicating a much taller person than the typical person (gasps) of the past centuries were found. Okay, but like how much taller, like six foot compared to five five? The few skeletons that were said to have been found contained red hair. (gasps) Sorry. One being female at six and a half feet tall, which is like 1.98 meters. It was just a really fucking tall family in the area that someone was like, we're going to fucking kill you because you're tall and we don't like you. The other being a male over eight feet tall. 2.44 2.44 meters. God damn, he had a gland issue, that one. That one's abnormal. Although that was it's definitely... said that there's evidence of this and the bones being found, we, we truly don't know. It's said at one point of the giant skeletal remains were housed at the Winnemucca Museum. But they are no longer there. They disappeared or what? Well, I I have pictures that I haven't sent you, but... Oh. You bet. I have it's a picture okay. of a jawbone <clears throat> that the Winnemucca Museum apparently held at one point, And it's 
the picture I have is a picture of a mold of a normal person's lower teeth compared to this jawbone. I wonder if they've done any, like, scientific testing to see if that's a real jawbone. Right. Well, when I... And I'll send it to you, Kristen, but when I look at this jawbone compared... You don't think. Well, radiocarbon dating was done on a follow-up visit to the Lovelock Cave, which found vegetable material dating back to 2030 before Christ BC, a human femur dating 1450 BC, and a human muscle tissue dating 1420 BC. God damn. Yeah, so regardless of like the giants or whatever <clears throat> we believe. I mean, that this has been cave around for a long has time. has historical context for sure. So it said that ancient human lovelock culture uh from what I read the ancient human lovelock culture was actually replaced by the northern Paiutes eventually down the line, like after BC or whatever. Yeah. Devoy Monk, a Lovelock historian who has lived her whole life, which is 80 plus years, in Lovelock, Nevada. Congratulations. Yeah. Her family's home today is also a small museum housing artifacts and depictions documenting centuries of indigenous culture and pioneer life. Devoy Monk has earned the trust of the Paiute elders who say the stories of the red-headed cannibal giants are true and that they definitely killed and ate their Paiute ancestors. <clears throat> Reporter George Knapp asked Devoy Monk, quote, Among today's Paiutes, do most say giants are real? End quote. Devoy Monk said, quote, All that I've talked to say yes. I haven't heard anybody say no. Okay. My Indian cool. friends tell me they were cannibals, that they set traps. They dug holes and pathways where they walked, covered them, and then Indians would fall in. And they said the best parts to eat were the thighs. End quote. I am dyeing my hair back. Dark brown. Next episode. (laughs) There are similar stories and legends about giants existing variously of course and other cultures and parts of the wild west at the time do they also have red hair in all versions of these stories about these giants the red hair (gasps) the fact that they live or lived around the live love lock love love lock cave never going there was Always consistent. Along with that, 
16th century Spanish conquistador Pedro Cieza de Leon recorded an ancient Peruvian tale about the origin of the South American giants in his Cronicas del Peru. He wrote, according to the legend, quote, came by sea in rafts of reeds after the manner of large boats. Some of the men were so tall that from the knee down they were as big as the length of an ordinary fair-sized man. Oh End my God. quote. So this kind of, kind of is similar to how I mean, the Sitequa giants were said to weave boats out of tulle. And that's no, you know, six foot man. Right. Unless the man that's describing it is like fucking four foot. Right. So it could be theorized that the giants of Peru and but the Sitequa like took refuge in America because it said that. The giants of Peru escaped and fled to America. Hmm. Wow. There's also relative references in the Bible, which to some people corroborates the fact that giants could exist. They could have existed at one point. And that even to non Bible believers that there could be some truth to giants existing. Sarah Winnemucca's book book does not mention giants, and mainstream archaeologists have vigorously rejected the entire theory, idea, and story of any giants existing. But we still don't know because it's said that the remains found in the grave in the cave or sorry, it's said that the remains found in the cave were slightly more robust, but in reality, they weren't any larger than normal standards. Regardless, even if the remains found were six feet instead of eight feet or whatever that is still considered more tall than the average person at the time and so relatively they could still be considered giants because like people at the time weren't used to like tall people like that (laughs) You can visit the Lovelock Cave today for a guided tour, if you'd like, as well as the as well as the Humboldt Museum, which apparently once held some of the remains of the giants. But please, one of us sponsor. If they ever held the remains of these giant skeleton remains, they were returned to the Paiutes out of respect for proper Mm. burial. 
As it, out of, as it should have been. Out of respect no. for proper burial. There, as it should have been. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a literal regulation called the Native American Graves Protection and Recreation Act. Oh. Which uh, facil- throw some knowledge on me real quick. You're welcome. Which facilitates a respectful return of human remains. It calls for human remains of any ancestry to be treated with dignity and respect so the bones and skulls that were once considered to be historical artifacts have been returned to tribes i like that so it's literally like this act is amazing because yeah because it's not your fucking right it's the people's exactly. right to decide what to do with those bones. Exactly. Like, they are literally their family. If oversized bones from the so-called Lovelock giants ever existed, then they are no longer available to us, the public. But... I don't know. I'd so, the fact that the red hair thing is like so consistent is a little weird. Link, please stop. Well, fee fi fo fum. I smell the blood of a story well done. <laughs> you know, I want to look at people over six foot different now. And you should, if you're short out there and you're really regretting your height, just be thankful because back in those times, it would have gotten you killed for being a giant. Until next time, guys, comment, like, subscribe. I know it's been a really long time, but it really helps the show out and it gives us motivation to do a new episode every time. At RARW Podcast. If you want to send us an email, you know where to send it. Or if you don't, Sarah, bring it away. Bread rum and bread wine podcast at gmail.com. Oh, she remembers it after a month. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise whatever God there is. All right, guys. Have a good one. Until next time. Bye. Spirit finger bite. (laughs)